0: Audible.com is offering UCTV podcast listeners a free 30-day trial subscription and one free audiobook download. Just visit audibletrial.com UCTV to sign up. That's audibletrial.com UCTV. And thanks. Good morning. Thank you.
1: First off, I'd like to uh, welcome you all here to the Bankhead Theater and to, uh, to this great science on Saturday. Can I see a sea of hands, or show of hands who's not from Livermore? Awesome, that's great. Don't forget we have a $5 fee to come into the, th- no. <laughs> I also want to do a big shout out to the Lawrence Livermore National Lab for providing this exciting science series for the students in the community. This is a tremendous and appreciated partnership for the lab and educators. Our topic today is Fighting Superbugs, Overcoming Antibiotic Resistance. When I was a kid growing up here in Livermore, the idea of fighting a superbug was on TV. It was in the form of mothra. Mothra was a giant moth the size of a blimp and it devastated Tokyo. It's what we loved to watch it on 4.30 in the afternoon after school. Nowadays, when I hear a scream from upstairs in my house, I know that my wife or daughter has found another superbug and I've got to go upstairs and fight it. Well, the superbugs in today's topic are much smaller and do affect our daily lives. The science behind them is what today's series is all about. Here to talk about superbugs and overcoming antibiotic resistance is Dr. Paul Jackson and Jackie Tate. Frankie Tate, oh, I'm sorry. Dr. Jackson received his Bachelor of Science of. Degree in, from the University of Washington and his PhD from the University of Utah in molecular biology. For the past 18 years, he has studied uh, bacterial pathogens. Paul spent 24 years as a technical staff member of Los Alamos National Laboratory, where he was heavily involved in development and the biological threat reduction efforts. He moved to Livermore National Laboratory in 2005, where he's presently the division leader of the Biosciences and Biotechnology Division and heads the host pathogen biology group. Ms. Tate has a B.S. degree in biology from Furman University in South Carolina and an M.A. in natural sciences from the San Jose State University. She worked for seven years in molecular biology labs in Indiana University and Stanford Medical Center before becoming a teacher. She has taught in the Livermore School District since 1986 and currently teaches biology, AP biology, and physiology at Granada High, and serves as the science department chair for six years. She is the coordinator of the Granada High Biotechnology Pathway. Ms. Tate was named Alameda County's Teacher of the Year in 2008. Please put your hands together and welcome Jack, Paul.
2: Good morning. So how many people came from out of town again? Wow. Thank you. Uh, This morning, I'm going to talk about uh, a a topic that actually uh, impacts all of you. And it has to do with uh, bacteria, not viruses, but bacteria that are resistant to different antibiotics, and, uh, and sometimes multiple antibiotics. Uh, and, and as we get into the talk, you'll understand what I'm talking about here. But I'm going to start the talk with some questions for you. What I'm going to do is I'm going to have, I'll put a question up on the, on the board here. Don't yell out the answer. I'm going to throw something out. Whoever catches the toy has the right to answer that question. If you don't answer it correctly, you've got to t- throw the toy to somebody else. Uh, the toys are different representations, very um, friendly representations of some pretty nasty organisms. But to start with... Here's the first question. Which of the following illnesses would you treat with an antibiotic? H1N1 flu, a cold, strep throat, or herpes simplex, which is the cold sores that some of us get. When I throw this out and you catch it, you have to tell me, stand up and tell the people what it is you just caught. Last one I dropped. <laughs> which one? Somebody else. <laughs> Good. Uh, yeah, That's correct. So, what organism do you have there? Uh, um, it's a flesh eating bacterium. It's not what causes strep throat. <laughs> That's an listerium, I would think. Okay, the answer is strep throat. And the reason for that is because it's caused by a bacterium. And and antibiotics work against bacteria, not viruses. Uh, H1N1 uh, is caused by a flu virus. Uh, Most colds are caused by uh, rhinoviruses in your sinuses and and, uh, that part of your body. Herpes simplex is caused by a virus that gets into your nervous system, actually, and then will live there and comes out when it's induced and uh, causes the cold sores that some of us get. Uh, There are other kinds of uh, herpes viruses that cause other kinds of diseases, but they are viruses. Bacterial infections are the only kinds of infections that can be treated with antibiotics. There are antiviral compounds out there, but we're not talking about those. I had a question after the first one, uh, what's the difference? Well, a virus actually goes into the host cell and uses the host cell to make the machinery of the host cell to make new viruses and and, and is passed along that way. A bacterium actually is a self-enclosed organism that has all its needs uh, to reproduce itself and to do its metabolism pretty much internally. It, it'll get some things from the host, but it's a, it's a freely living, independent organism. And it can live inside cells too, but it is an organism in itself. Okay, the second question. To help prevent the development of antibiotic-resistant superbugs, you should A, take the antibiotic prescribed by your doctor only until you feel better so that you don't use any more of the antibiotic than is absolutely necessary. B, keep a store of antibiotics at home and take them as soon as you begin to feel sick. C, take antibiotics only when you have a bacterial infection and take all the antibiotics prescribed. Or D, use an antibacterial soap regularly. This time I'm going to throw a T-shirt, I think. I can go further with a T-shirt. Did she catch it? Which is it? Take a guess. C. Is that what you said? That's correct. (laughs) Okay, the reason it's important to take all the antibiotics that are prescribed is because not doing so is one of the reasons we get resistance. Uh, It's actually more common in the... um, some of the really nasty long-term disease, like tuberculosis and things, where people will take the antibiotic, they start feeling better, and then they quit taking the drug, because the drugs have some side effects too. And uh, then what happens is, because they didn't kill everything off, because they didn't take the regimen for the full course of the regimen and, and all of the materials, is those that survived the initial treatment are going to be by their nature those that are somewhat resistant to the drugs they were taking. And so you then, they start to come back in the infection, and they establish themselves not only in the individual, but they can establish themselves in the population, and now you have drug resistance. So it's very, very important when you get antibiotics. If you get a 10-day course of antibiotics, you take all of them, and you take them when you're supposed to take them, or they may not work the way they're supposed to. Are antibacterial-containing products, just like soaps, they're advertised on the, on the, in the news and on the paper and, and TV and all that, better for preventing the spread of infections? I have to go this way. I haven't gone this way. Uh, by the way, uh, I don't know if I can get it that far. <laughs> she didn't even try. <laughs> Answer the question? Well, first of all, tell me what it is you have there. The black plague, what organism causes the black plague? I assure you it's not fuzzy like that. <laughs> Anybody know what organism causes the black plague? Yes. I can hear you. Now the organism, uh, you're two steps away The rats carry the fleas The fleas get infected with the bacterium The fleas become very, very hungry And therefore, go because the bacterium blocks their gut So they become ravenously hungry They go and infect or bite organisms That they normally don't, wouldn't bite, i.e. humans And they transmit the disease that way But the disease is caused by a bacterium What is it? Yersinia pestis And we'll talk about that later And uh, it is prevalent, it's still uh, uh, found in the United States. Okay, answer to the question. Uh, Is it A? Are you asking me or are you telling me? Yes. Yes? Are antibiotic-containing products uh, better for pruning? Throw it off to somebody else. (laughs) 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 has to be somebody under the age of 18. So obviously what's the answer? yeah b no <laughs> the reason that it's no is that first of all most of the soaps and things we have out there are perfectly good at killing or at least at removing the bacteria uh from uh from dishes and from your hands and so on and so forth uh actually uh detergents uh, you know hand soap and and it's particularly dish soap is very very good at at, at as an antibacterial agent without adding anything to it. You don't need this. Uh, the other thing is, quite frankly, you've heard of level you know, BSL-2 and BSL-3 and BSL-4 laboratories. What kind of disinfectant do you think we use in a BSL-3 laboratory? It's bleach. 10% solution of bleach. Best disinfectant around. Kills almost anything. Now, what's in the, a lot of these soaps? They put alcohol in them. Actually, um, for example, I work on anthrax. And anthrax forms spores. And guess how you purify the spores? You wash them in acetone or alcohol. It doesn't kill them at all. So you need to use something good, but you don't need to put an antibiotic into your soaps. You can use the the very nature of soap itself will kill most things. Uh, You can only get a MRSA, that's a methicillin-resistant staphylococcus aureus, staph infection in a hospital. Yes or true or false? see, what do we have left here? Ah, this isn't a bacterium. I don't know if it's going to fly very well. What is it? First of all, what, what do you have in your hands? Ebola. Is that caused by a virus or bacterium? It's caused by a virus. It's not a bacterium. We just have these. Now hold that up. Hold it up in the air so people can see it. See, it has a sort of a, looks like a shepherd's crook, like a cane. That's a very distinctive feature of Ebola. So when you look at the electron microscope, when you're looking for this, that's one of the ways you can identify it, is by its structure. But that's caused by a virus. Now, what's the answer to the question? Pardon me? Okay, you can only get a infection in a hospital. B is the correct. That's the correct answer. The reason it's correct is because uh, more recently... Although most of the staph uh, infections from hospitals that were resistant uh, were found in hospitals. There's something called clinically acquired uh, MRSA infections that are becoming more and more prevalent. That's because people who pick them up one place take them somewhere else. Everybody in here probably has Staphylococcus aureus on their skin. And there's probably a few of you that have drug-resistant Staphylococcus aureus on your skin right now. You're colonized. The fact is, is for most people, that's fine. Uh, you're not going to get sick uh, unless you ha- you, your immune system gets knocked down or you have uh, a trauma- traumatic uh, injury or something like this where your, your system's knocked out. Uh, but once that happens, you can become infected with your own, or worse yet, you can pass it off to somebody else who is sensitive. So it's very, very important uh, that you understand that even though you may not be sick, you can, you can make somebody else who who is old and firm uh, HIV positive, has cancer, taking anti, uh, uh, or suppressant drugs for immune systems or whatever, can become easily infected with this, and it can kill them. Uh, it's pretty dangerous. It says here methicillin resistance, by the way. Because of the mechanism of resistance, it's also resistant to a number of other antibiotics besides methicillin, and we'll get to that later. Okay, antibiotics were actually discovered over 100 years ago, and the first one that was discovered was something called pyrocyanase, uh, And what's interesting about it is it did a really great job of of killing bacteria, but there was one minor problem, and it's that when they started to use it in people for any length of time, it killed the patients, too. So you didn't die of the bacterial infection. That's the good news. Kind of harsh otherwise. Uh, Early 20s, Alexander Fleming. Who who knows who Alexander Fleming is? Nobody. You're going to find about him in just a minute. Uh, He discovered an enzyme called lysozyme. And where does lysozyme come from? Some of you guys had them for breakfast this morning. <laughs> eggs. The whites of eggs have lysozyme in it. The other place you get it is your own saliva. In fact, it's part of the innate immune system that uh, all uh, higher organisms have. Uh, it's the first thing, a non-specific defense against bacteria. And your saliva and a lot of other uh, fluids in your body contain your tears contain lysozyme. And uh, unfortunately, it's not a very good antibiotic to use because in large amounts it's toxic, and so you can't just inject somebody with it. Uh, So that was uh, early 1920s. Alexander Fleming discovered that, and he also discovered something a little bit more important called penicillin a few years later. And uh, penicillin is still used today in different forms. But what's interesting about this, and I'll get to it on the next slide, is how he discovered it. Now, you have to understand, first of all, this... What you see here is bacteria growing on a plate here. And then what you have here is a round colony of fungus growing on the plate. And that's a penicillium fungus here. And what's important here is if you notice this clear zone between the bacteria and the fungus. And that's because this, this fungus has to compete for its nutrients in that plate or wherever else it lives by competing with bacteria that are out there. And what you're, what's happening here is it's putting out an inhibitory pro, uh, compound here called penicillin that keeps these bacteria from growing close by to it so it can actually compete better for its own resources. And that's what's happening in the environment all the time. A lot of the antibiotics, that you're going to see, come from natural sources. They come out of the environment. So you can see this clear zone. That's a zone of inhibition. That's actually a zone of death, because the penicillin actually kills the cells in this particular case. Now, how did he discover this? He did it by doing bad science. He did something that I would throw people out of my lab if they did, and what he did is he, he did some plates, left them on the bench open, Petri dish open on the bench and went on vacation. Uh, you wouldn't work in my lab very long if you did that. Uh, basically when he returned, what he found is there's a mold growing on the plate, similar to that last slide, and what he found was that the area around the mold had inhibited all the bacteria that were growing on the plate when he left. So. By accident, and this is not normally how you do science because normally you get your discovery by doing a lot of really mundane, grinded out grunt work, and then you get some nice results. But the actual getting there isn't always all that much fun. Well, he just came back from vacation. I've never come back from vacation and had anything good happen. Usually something bad happens when you come back from vacation. Anyway, he was not able to actually purify the penicillin himself, but he gave it out to a lot of other people, and one of those people was this uh, Howard Florey. in Australia, who was able to purify us very small amounts and uh, found it was a very, very potent material uh, and would kill a lot of different bacteria. However, penicillin was not the first clinically important antibiotic. The first one that was really out there was discovered by a guy named René DuBois. And you might know him better from uh, this phrase, think globally, act locally, which has to do with how you really get things done in the world. Uh, and also a book that he wrote that he got the Pulitzer Prize for called uh, So Human and Animal, written in ni- 1968, I believe. It's a very good reading, by the way. But anyway, he discovered and isolated this gramicidin uh, antibiotic, and it was the first one that was actually used in early World War II, um, and it proved to be highly effective in treating wounds and ulcers. And so, you know, people say, well, penicillin was the first one. It was the first one discovered that was useful, but it wasn't the first one out there. Penicillin came along in 1943. Clinical trials were completed, and it was available on D-Day to treat wounded, wounded soldiers uh, and people on, on D-Day of 1944. That's way before a lot of our times. I wasn't born there yet. Uh, but what was interesting at the time, in those times, uh, it was nearly priceless in the early 40s. 1943, July is $20 a dose. $20 went a lot further than that, then than it does now. It uh, went a lot further 10 years ago than it does now. Um, by 1946, it was down to 55 cents a dose, and now you can buy it for 45 cents a dose. And this is the generic brand of penicillin G that we're referring to here. Now, as I said, a lot of these come from natural sources, and you're probably not going to recognize all the classes here, but you might recognize a few of the examples I've given. So, uh, aminoglycoside antibiotics include uh, streptomycin and uh, some of these others. Cephalosporins are similar to uh, penicillins in how they act, but you have... Uh, different uh, attack mechanism. Penicillins, of course, are ampicillin, amoxicillin, carbenicillin, penicillin G. Tetracyclines are tetracycline, doxycycline. And you'll notice that it, uh, you probably can't see too well here, but the, um, they're either from bacterial sources in the violet here or fungal sources. And all of these originated in the, uh, uh, from uh, organisms they found uh, primarily in soils. Now, on top of that, uh, what we found is right off the bat, you start to get a resistance to these things, and the reason for that is because they're already out there, so other organisms have started to get, develop resistance in the environment so that they can compete. It's an arms race, as we'll get to. But what very quickly became evident is they become resistant, and, and for that reason, uh, people found that they could modify the compounds like doxycycline and, and or, uh, tetracycline and ampicillin, uh, and, and by doing that, make it more effective so that you don't have uh, resistance to it anymore, and so they did chemical modifications of the original naturally occurring antibiotic. And so you get these antibiotics. A lot of the ones that we use today are in fact those kinds of antibiotics. Uh, and then there's completely man-made, mad synthesized and designed antibiotics. And that's based on an understanding of the bacterial organism you want to target and some critical part of that organism that, uh, that's a life and death issue for that organism. In particular, ciprofloxacin attacks DNA replication. If you can't replicate your DNA, you can't divide. You can't divide. You're no longer an issue from a uh, pathogenic standpoint. Uh, Now, this new drug here, uh, uh, Xyvox, it was developed specifically because there are strains out there that are resistant to almost everything. And this is considered the drug of last resort even when you have resistance to bancomycin, which was the drug of last resort. This would be the drug they give you. Now, the reason they don't give you this as a first resort is because, one, they need drugs like for last resort. The other is these drugs usually have very nasty side effects. So they're, they're uh, often given intravenously, and they're also given under strict supervision because they may destroy your kidneys or destroy your liver if you take them in the wrong way. So there's, always a, there's, an off, there, there's a play here. If you don't need to take it, don't take it for that reason, too, because you can get sick from uh, the side effect that the antibiotic might have. Now I'm gonna go through some mechanisms here, and you're gonna see some round circles pop up here on the screen, and we're gonna talk about the mechanisms by which antibiotics work. And the first one that comes up here with the red circle is uh, protein synthesis. And in this particular case, these antibiotics attack the large subunit of the ribosomes. The ribosomes are part of the machinery that produce proteins in the cell. If you can't produce proteins, you can't survive. Uh, There's another class of of, uh, protein synthesis inhibitors they attack the small subunit. So even though they attack protein synthesis, if you become to, resistant to these, these will work because they attack a different part of the cell. Cell wall synthesis, uh, again, you have uh, penicillins are up here. They actually attack the wall. And, and in fact, something I'm going to talk about later uh, causes the wall to rupture and basically you will uh, end up with a dead cell because it, it, the wall can't be synthesized or the wall is destroyed one way or the other. And these will attack the cell wall, not to be confused with the cell membrane, which is the inner part here. Again, that's uh, the wall is the outer uh, kind of reddish part here. Another way they work is, as I mentioned before, DNA replication. Uh, again, the, uh, uh, Cipro and some of the other drugs like it uh, attack uh, the ability to disentangle the DNA. Uh, they, they're topoisomerases. They untangle the DNA when it's replicated. And if you don't have those, you can't make DNA. It's part of the replication machinery. And uh, if you can't make DNA, you're kind of like history in this, in this world. Uh, another way antibiotics will work is they'll attack some critical part of the metabolism of the organism. In this particular case, you have to be able to make folic acid in order to survive and uh, make DNA, among other things and they block the, a couple of the enzymes that are involved in the pathway. In fact, the drugs together, they use two in combination that will block two successive steps. What's interesting is, you're, as I'll show you later, you get resistance to those rather quickly, and there's a reason for that that I'll talk about in a little bit. And Then, of course, I talked about the cell wall. Well, if you look here, we're pointing at the cell membrane, and uh, these polymyxins actually attack the membrane and will cause the cell to lyse. They're, they're not unlike some detergents, except for they're far more directed. And the last one we have on in here is the actual DNA-dependent RNA polymerase, where you mess up RNA metabolism. You can't make RNA from your DNA, you can't make proteins, and therefore you're dead from that perspective. Okay, natural selection is something that maybe some of you believe in and some of you don't. But here you've got a lion chasing the zebra, and this is after the, lion, the zebra figures out a different way to get away. Uh, <laughs> That's not really natural selection, uh, in that uh, and they haven't found a zebra yet that can ride one of these things. Uh, but the fact is is that uh, in the bacterial well, in particular, it's really obvious what selection is about. It's because if you're exposed to something, you either die or don't. And if you don't, you continue to propagate. If you do, you're out of the picture. Simple as that. So if you think about the soil out there, or even water environments and such, the uh, way Medcalf put it well, it's like chemical warfare between bacteria. In 3.5 three billion years of evolution, they have come up with a lot of ways to kill each other. And that's because in order to survive, they've got to have some sort of advantage out there. They're all competing for the same nutrients, and so those that can compete better for, by whatever mechanisms. Uh, turn, uh, on the other side of that, though, is if, if you can defeat the mechanism that somebody else is using to kill you, then you have an advantage over that organism again. So, for example, if you're a fungi and you're making penicillin, you have an advantage until some penicillin-resistant bacteria come around, and then they're not going to be bothered by your being there. What's important about this, the implication, is that the genes that are involved in resistance are already out there. They're not in pathogens, necessarily, but they're already out there in in the environment. They're already there because they've been there for millions of years. It's just a matter that most pathogens, until recently, have never seen antibiotics. And therefore, there was no advantageous reason to carry these genes. So with that, we're going to have a little demonstration. This is Frankie Tate uh, uh, from Granada High School.
3: Good morning. It's nice to see you all. Well, wow. it's SRO here on a Saturday morning. That's awesome. I have invited some of my students from Granada High school to come up and help me with this uh, demonstration. And so you guys know which thing you are. Yeah, so grab your. And my, Ryan and Megan, why don't you guys just hang out over here with me for a minute? And then what I want you to do is just come out. So we'll just get sort of spaced out here, any way you want. But out in, so they can see you guys. Come on, come on, come on, come on. Out in the light. Come on out. Okay. And just kind of space yourselves, stagger yourselves out in a group. We didn't really have a stage quite the size of the bankhead to go over this. Um, Okay. So how many of you have taken an antibiotic in the last year? Raise your hand if you've taken an antibiotic in the last year. All right. Um, How many of you took the antibiotic as the doctor instructed and you completed the prescription. Very good, very good. Okay, so what we're modeling here is um, an infection of some sort, somewhere in an individual's um, body. And these students here represent the population of bacteria that are causing the infection. Now you'll notice that they are very similar, they're the same type of bacterium, But there's variation in the population. They aren't all exactly the same. Just like we have variation amongst ourselves. In all traits, there's variation in populations. And so, you have this infection. Doctor prescribes the antibiotic, says, take this antibiotic for 10 days. So, we have some antibiotics here that are going to come in and they're going to attack the bacteria and we are going to see who is killed off so in the first few days in the first few days you see that most of the bacteria were killed off in particular we killed off all of the yellow ones and one of the green ones and so you continue taking the antibiotic so a few more days of antibiotic you and we start we find that now the green ones are killed off the orange ones are starting to feel a little maybe not so great but they weren't killed off right away <laughs> so we continue to take the antibiotic to finish out our 10 days and the bacterial infection is wiped out and so we feel Good, and we have um, wiped out the population. Okay, guys, stand up. We're not done. Now, let's say another person has an um, infection, same type of bacterium. There's this uh, population that is not homogeneous, there's a variation in the population. And again, the doctor prescribes. Antibiotics says take these for ten days. Person starts out, takes the antibiotics. Antibiotics come in, they do their bidding, and we wipe out a large part. Some of them are starting to feel a little not so great, but they're still standing. And some, the orange ones, are still in good shape. So. But the person says, well, I know I'm supposed to take the antibiotics. They'll take it another day or so. And so we wipe out the green ones. And then this person is saying, you know, I feel, I really feel fine now. I feel better. I got better. Um, And they say, and gee, you know, if if I save some of these... The next time I get a sore throat or something, I won't even have to go to the doctor. I can just, I already have the antibiotics here. So they don't take them. So as a result, what we have are these bacteria left. And those bacteria that are left are able to divide. And as they divide, then those will continue to divide. And pretty soon, we have this population that is made up now almost entirely of bacteria that are resistant to this antibiotic. And so now, in the, pop- in the environment, we have large numbers and high percentages of antibiotic-resistant bacteria. Nicely done, ladies and gentlemen. And- to thank you for helping we have official, genuine, Science on Saturday slinkies for you oh, cool. <laughs> to enjoy after the talk.
2: Now, this slide here is uh, showing basically what they did in a lot more entertaining fashion. You start out uh, with a population with variability. You have, after a selection, you have a few of the survivors. If you didn't kill them all off, if you take enough, you'll kill everything. Uh, and uh, then that population will grow, and you'll get a population of more resistant uh, microbes that are then much more difficult to treat or certainly not going to be treated with the same antibiotic if, it's, uh, if they're resistant to levels uh, above that that are given clinically. Now, this is an example of uh, ciprofloxacin resistance in bacillus anthracis. Does anybody know what bacillus anthracis causes? Anthrax. Anthrax. There's not that much anthrax around the country. Actually, there is quite a bit in animals. Uh, The last big outbreak was last summer in um, Montana, and it was in a herd of uh, domestically uh, raised uh, buffalo that were being raised for meat, and about 700 of them died. Wild-type anthrax here. Now, what we have here is a plate. You can see the cloudy area here around here with a clear area here. That's the bacteria growing. This stick is a stick with ciprofloxacin in it. And the concentration goes from low to high as you go up the stick. So the highest concentrations are up here. And so the arrow points to the clinically important level. That's the amount that you would have in your blood system, a bloodstream, and such after you took the antibiotic as prescribed. So anything that's resistant to above this mark is going to be problematic. Make sense? So it's going to, it kills out, the antibiotic in the stick will kill out, out to the level where uh, you have a natural resistance. In this particular case, it's way down here. Uh, as you do uh, as they become resistant you're going to see that uh, the cutoff point here is a little bit higher It's still clinically uh, okay you could kill this with the clinical doses that you normally would use for Cipro but as you become more resistant uh, this isolate here it's still resistant to the very highest levels but you cannot give those kind of concentrations of Ciprofloxacin because they'll have impact on you You'll do things to your um, organs uh, so at this point, this isolate would be problematic. You could not treat it with a ciprofloxacin antibiotic. You'd have to treat it with something else. And actually, you can get resistance to all the concentrations that, are, that you could possibly get for cipro. And so even though ciprofloxacin is a drug of choice for uh, treating anthrax infections, uh, something that was resistant to ciprofloxacin like this, would have uh, the cipro would have no impact on that. And this occurs for other bacteria as well. I just, I just use this because it's one we've been studying. Now, I had the slide up before of the mechanisms of how the antibiotics work. So if you think about how the antibiotics work, you can start to think about how you become resistant. And um, again, the, the circle here uh, shows uh, the modification of the target enzyme. Again, ciprofloxacin resistance occurs because cipro attacks topoisomerases. They're part of the DNA replication process. And, they ch- and um, the bacterium just mutates its... Uh, topoisomerase protein so that it no longer binds to the Cipro, so the Cipro has no impact on it. Another mechanism, uh, again circled here, uh, has to do with overproduction of the target enzyme. Now a lot of things will target protein synthesis and they'll target some part of protein synthesis. What the cell does is they just make more of that. So for example, if you have protein A and it's being hit by Uh, antibiotic B, and you have a certain amount of of B coming into the cell, you just make more of A, and so there's so much there that it overwhelms the antibiotic, and you still can continue to grow in the presence of what would normally be uh, an effective dose of antibiotic. Another, and this is where uh, penicillinases come in. There's, uh, they're called beta lactamases, and they're produced. All organisms have them, by the way. It's just about how they're expressed. If penicillin comes into the cell and, and you express your beta, uh, the bacterium expresses the, the beta lactamases properly, it'll destroy the penicillin. Penicillin doesn't work. A similar mechanism is to just modify it, so you chemically modify it. You can put a methyl group or something like that on the antibiotic as it comes in, and, and it no longer functions. You destroy its function by modifying it chemically. And um, again, penicillin, uh, there's uh, uh, penicillin and acetylases that actually put it a, a, a chemical group on the side of the penicillin so it can no longer function, and therefore you have resistance to penicillin in the bug that can do that. Uh, one of the obvious ones is don't let the stuff in just basically block it from getting in through the cell, and there are mechanisms that do that. So the antibiotic cannot get through the cell wall or the cell membrane. And the most important and most uh, dangerous one is this efflux pump. The the antibiotic comes in and gets pumped right back out. So the pumps work fast enough to keep the antibiotic uh, out at concentrations you would normally use. And so they just pump it out as fast as it comes in. So it's like a sinking ship. If you have enough pumps, you can pump the water out even though there's holes. Now, what's dangerous here is that when you can pump one antibiotic, you can often pump two or three other kinds of antibiotics. So this pump will give you multiple drug resistance. And in fact, methicillin resistance in the MRSA isolates is because of a pump like this in some cases. And when you have that pump working, not only are you resistant to methicillin, but you're resistant to a bunch of other drugs too, multiple drug-resistant organism. The last one here is uh, to interfere with a, a metabolic pathway. So for example, I mentioned folic acid metabolism. Um, you can block fol- folic acid metabolism at two steps, and, and, you, um, and you say, well, I got it covered. Well, what the cell has figured out is another way to make folic acid. So they just use a different pathway, and they make, uh, make the, the folic acid a different way. Now, most cells have redundant mechanisms in them, as you would have on an aircraft or any important thing, because if one fails, something else has to survive. You don't want it to be a one-point thing. And so a lot of cells have figured out ways to make the same thing in different ways. And we, in our um, lack of wisdom, don't understand that all, all the time, and very quickly you'll get resistance because they have another way of, of, of dealing with the issue that you've just presented them. Okay, now I'm going to get into a, a, the topic of, of most importance here, and that has to do with the misuse of antibiotics. They're natural substances, as I said before. They're made by bacteria and fungi, and there's a means to uh, establish themselves and survive in their environment. Now, I don't know if you can read this, but this says, uh, Hey, kid, I want to be a superbug. Uh, stick some of this into your genome, and even penicillin won't harm you. And this is the guy walking through. This is a piece of DNA coil there. And it was the shortcut through the hospital kitchen that Albert was first approached by a member of the antibiotic resistance. So uh, the, the point here, the take home message is that DNA uh, is not just the whole genome. There are plasmids, small pieces. And often, antibiotic resistance is encoded on these small pieces of DNA that are rapidly moved from one cell to another and across species lines. Therefore, it becomes a lot more problematic. Uh, these plasmids can be just a few hundred base pairs long or a few thousand base pairs long, as opposed to a genome, which is millions of base pairs. And they actually, the bacteria have mechanisms that will at least, um, in some cases, actively transfer these things. They have conjugation mechanisms that will actually move them from one species to another or between the same species. In some cases, they'll just pick it up passively, and, and once they get the DNA of it, if there's a selective pressure to keep it, Then they may survive and keep it. And those that have picked it up, even though it might be one in a million, will be the ones that survive and can then uh, take over the population eventually. Now, one of the other issues we have here is antibiotics uh, put into animal feed. And we're going to talk a little bit about that. I'm going to run a movie here if I can get it to figure out where my cursor went. If you look here, it's in the feed. And the, the microbes, the, the, chi- uh, the chicken eats the feed, the antibiotics in the feed, and the microbes in the chicken's gut, all chickens have micro- uh, microbes in their gut, are going to have to survive in the, with whatever comes in. Okay? And the reason they put chicken or antibiotics in the feed is because the bird does better when in large flocks, because they don't get sick, they don't get subclinical levels of disease, and they tend to grow faster and a little bit. You know, they, have, they don't have the problems that they might have otherwise. Uh, of course, oops... I need to go back one. It's not going to run for me this time. I ran fine last time. Uh, so, yeah, here you go. Now the chickens do what chickens normally do, and they defecate into the soil. And so you've got chicken poop all over the place. And, of course, there's bacteria in that that were um, now selected for resistance to the antibiotic in the feed. And now you've got a kid playing out there in the field... And uh, there's other organisms besides what was in the feces in the the soil. And if you've ever been around a chicken farm, you'll know how fertile that soil is, right where chickens are. Uh, And uh, so there's obviously uh, the opportunity for exchange of resistance uh, mechanisms and plasmids. And so now you have uh, an antibiotic that may uh, be no longer effective in the human case because something that came through a chicken and got passed on to a pathogen has now uh, infected somebody. And to, you know, you'd say, well, that can never happen. But in fact, here's a case of where it did happen. This was in uh, Madagascar a few years ago. And what happened is a young boy was playing around in a chicken yard. And he, got, he wasn't that young. He was about your age, 16. And he got plague, bubonic plague. Almost killed him. They did miraculously survive. But when they treated him with antibiotics, they, tr- they, used, they tried all eight of the antibiotics that you would normally use to treat plague, and none of them worked. And that was because this plague bacillus that was in there, this Yersinia pestis, had this plasmid, this piece of DNA in it, and it turns out that it confers resistance to all eight of those antibiotics, all in one piece of DNA. Now, you don't have to have all of the antibiotics in the feed to get resistance to this, because all you need is selection for resistance to one of those, and then if you get this plasmid, the rest come along for the ride. So even though you only had selection for one antibiotic... That was in the feed. Actually, there were two in the feed. They picked up multi-drug resistance here because this plasmid moved from the E. coli, and this has been proven. They've actually done the test, and they show that this is an E. coli plasmid that was in the chickens, and they found it in the chicken, in the soil there, and it moved into Yersinia pestis, which isn't that far away from E. coli phylogenetically, and uh, you ended up with drug-resistant plague. Now, everybody knows about plague and how many people died in the Middle Ages Many people say, we don't have plague in this country. Well, that's not exactly true. That map over here shows all the cow- uh, cow- uh, counties in the, in the western United States that since 1970 have had one or more plague, human plague cases. So, uh, plague's alive and well. Uh, if you, uh, we, I used to be in New Mexico, as you mentioned, and we had a T-shirt that says, New Mexico, land of the flea and home of the plague, and it, was, it had a flea with boots on it. It's a really good T-shirt, but they don't make it anymore. The state doesn't like it too much. <laughs> So basically, it's very important to use antibiotics only when they're needed, and their misuse is a, can be a real problem because you get drug resistance, and not to mention the fact that if you don't need it, it can actually do harm to you, too. A lot of these drugs, the best drug is no drug. If you can avoid taking it, don't take it. Uh, once an organism is resistant, it can pass that gene, those genes onto something else, and when it becomes resistant to one antibiotic, it may acquire resistance to others. So in that particular case, even though there was selection against... Uh, for resistance against one antibiotic actually two, it it picked up that plasmid and because the resistance for those two was on that plasmid and the other six came along for the ride, it's now resistant to everything so to summarize this part don't ask your doctor for an antibiotic when you aren't feeling well, tests will show whether you unlock you need one, in fact the vast majority of doctors when surveyed say they will give an antibiotic if the patient insists because it will get the patient out of their hair um, in fact, they said 60% of uh, pediatricians who give uh, will give antibiotics for kids with colds and ear infections, even though in most cases they are not bacterial, they're viral. Uh, and so do take your, all the antibiotics prescribed by your doctor, as you saw up here. There's a reason for that. If you don't take the prescribed dosage, you may leave a few, and then those few can propagate, and you'll end up with a resistant population. Don't share your antibiotics, partly because they were given to you, and you're not supposed to take them all. The other is if you give them to somebody else and it isn't an antibiotic that's effective against the illness that the person has, it's not going to do any good and you may delay their treatment. And do call your doctor if it doesn't work because if it's a bacterial infection and it doesn't work, then you may have a resistant strain, in which case you want to get after that right away because people die by not getting that treatment quickly. Okay, uh, we talked about it in agriculture and it's used live and well and I'm not going to read that to you. You can look at that. But over here, you see a, this is a U.S. fig farm. Uh, you'll go into there, uh, even though the smell is a bit much. They're actually quite clean. But the bottom line is you have a lot of animals in a small popula- a small space. And it's, very, it's like having all you guys. How would you like to sleep in here tonight together? Wouldn't be much fun, would it? There's a reason that animals need some space. I mean, you have to have a limited amount of space. So we're putting animals that would not normally be in that kind of space into a confined space. And, of course, they're in a situation where they can pass... Uh, um, microbes around and so on and so forth, so they're, they're at higher risk of becoming infected with something. Uh, those who favor using antibiotics on the farm will say, well, we don't use the same antibiotics as you use in, uh, in human therapy, and they say that the microbes are different. Well, first of all, the argument about the microbes being different, we already talked about that, because even though the microbe you got that became resistant may be different, it can pass that information onto something that is a pathogen in a human. It's already been demonstrated Uh, The other point is that, you know, they say, well, they're using the different antibiotics, and I thought, well, you know, I know a lot about antibiotics. I'm trying to figure out what different ones they could be using that they wouldn't use in humans, and there are a few. But what's interesting about it is I actually had to go to the feed marketers and find, look at the ingredients, and see what's in there and how much. And here are the antibiotics that I found. And as you can see, a lot of these, in fact, are used in medical for medical purposes. Some are not. But what's really interesting is I talked about cross-resistance mechanisms. Uh, Even though you might use a drug here that you'd never use in a human, when you get resistance to that drug in a veterinary situation, the mechanism of resistance makes it resistant to drugs that you would use in humans. So even though you wouldn't get direct resistance to that uh, drug by exposure, you're getting it because it uses the same means like to pump it out. So even though you have uh, resistance to... uh, a drug here that you normally wouldn't use in humans, that same resistance mechanisms would, in fact, make you resistant to drugs they do use in humans. So it's very, very important that, you, uh, that these things are they're, they're transferred around between one another from different microbes and across species, and that the mechanism can be diff- uh, the same even though the drug is different. So what a lot of people don't realize is there's a real pressure to use antibiotics in feed, because 70% of the antibiotics produced in the United States are used in animal feed. I mean, you and I don't take that many antibiotics, at least I hope you don't. But in fact, a lot of it is being used in animal feed. And therefore, these companies want to make money. Well, they're not going to make money by selling it to you. And they're going to make a lot more money by selling it in big sacks or big, big containers of animal feed. I think that's one of your questions, by the way. Everything seems to be shuffling out here. So another example of this is in the 90s, people were feeding uh, ciprofloxacin, quinolone antibiotics, to chickens in chicken feed. And there's a bacterium called campylobacter. Uh, You've probably heard of salmonella. Well, this is the other one that you get on chickens. And in fact, this is more prevalent on chickens now than salmonella salmonella is. And it causes food poisoning. And what was interesting is they started getting these strains uh, that were making people sick, and they were resistant to cipro. Uh, And so they pulled them out and they went back and something that we we actually worked a lot on to develop here at the lab, and other people have too, is you develop these molecular typing systems that you can get very precisely uh, not only the strain, uh, I mean the species, but you can tell the isolates apart. So for example, if you're checking out salmonella one place, you can see if it's the same strain somewhere else. And by using those methods, they very quickly trace this back to the chickens and in fact, the strains that were making people sick were coming out of the chickens, and the only way you would have had Cipro resistance is if if it was in the feed, and in fact they did have it in the feed. Now you cannot have Cipro and that class of antibiotics in in, uh, chicken feed. Uh, That's legislation that's done that. Again, the AMA, World Health Organization, uh, Food and Agriculture Organization of the United Nations, European Union, and a lot of other organizations are saying you cannot use antibiotic in feed. But in fact, this country they still do to ex- quite an extent, um, and it's a, it's it's a political issue. Uh, again, you have people that get healthier animals uh, uh, by feeding them. Uh, you're keeping animals because of the way we do livestock breeding, or not breeding, but livestock in this country. We keep them in a. At the end of the life cycle, at least, even with beef, you keep them in a fairly tight quarters, and so it's useful to have the antibiotics that way. And then the other, of course, the drug companies want to sell them. And uh, you and I getting sick isn't going to be much of a market from a standpoint of selling antibiotics. And this is starting to address another question that you have in there. A new generation of antibiotics is... Uh, we think should be based on uh, a means that... Allows us to get after something that the cell itself produces. So, can we generate a new antibiotic or a class of new antibiotics based on whether we understand or that we understand the organism well and how it works? And in particular, can we actually use genes of the, of the organism against it? And that's what we've been trying to do at the lab recently. There's over a thousand bacterial genomes, that's the DNA sequences of microbes, are now available out there. And if you scan that, the, those genomes, all of them have genes, every bacterium out there has genes, uh, uh, one or more genes that produce these proteins called myramidases. There's four different kinds of myramidases, and most often they have all four. They usually have at least two of the four. So what's a myramidase? It um, shows a little bit better here. Uh, they're enzymes that are thought to be involved in cell wall metabolism. Now think of the cell wall, or the cell as a, as a balloon, a membrane balloon full of liquid, with a fishnet over the outside. In order to make new fishnet, you've got to make nicks in the old fishnet to open it up to synthesize new, and it typically synthesizes from the middle out. Oh, there's some young ones here today. That wasn't a cell phone, was it? <laughs> so these uh, proteins look like they provide a, a, uh, a role in cell wall metabolism, particularly cell division, because in order to divide, you have to make new... Uh, new cell wall. And so I I, uh, put this together last night, it's not as good as the one we have, but if if you take this material, these muramidases, and introduce them in large amounts instead of the very tightly controlled amount that the cells make, uh, what you do is you start to introduce nicks into the cell wall, not the membrane, the wall, and what happens is you get a bulge coming out of there eventually, because the balloon inside has a lot more osmotic pressure, so it's pushing out. And it's held against this, and it'll actually push out. And with time, more and more of the wall is being destroyed, and, and you're, more and more of this is pushing out. And ultimately, what you have is you're starting to get uh, release of liquids and such from the membrane, because it's not being held the way it's supposed to. And the cell wall will eventually lyse. And, and basically, uh, uh, the wall comes off. Now you have this thing, and it'll just pop. And that's how it works. Now there's some advantages to this, as I'll get into a little later. First of all, it doesn't go inside the cell. It attacks from the outside. And so the mechanisms of resistance you see of exclusion or pumping aren't going to work. The other the, uh, mechanisms of modification aren't going to work either because it doesn't go into the cell. It, it, it's from the outside specifically. As I said, it, we think they're involved in regular cell metabolism. These are antibody-based uh, identification of the muramidases. And as you see, the cells are getting ready to radio, radio divide here. You have some of it around, but most of it's right at the division point. And we think what's happening is it's nicking the wall there in preparation for the enzymes to come in and make new wall. So they have to synthesize new wall out in order for that to divide. So if you can't make wall, you're history. Because you can't divide if you can't make new wall. So we think that, at least for now, they usually figure out a way around these. Eventually the bugs do. But right now it looks like these muramidases may be a very good antibiotic. The other thing that's interesting is I mentioned lysozyme earlier. Well, that's actually a muramidase. But unlike these muramidases, it does not have a specific recognition part to the protein. So this particular one we're working with will target the species and some very, very close relatives of that species only. It doesn't target everything else. So it's ter- specific for a particular pathogen. And it's because it's, it's, a gene, it's made out of a gene that's encoded by that, o- that pathogen. It's a, it's a gene that belongs to the pathogen. So what we've done is taken something that normally would function at very low levels, and we produce a lot of it, we dump it on the cells and say, hey, eat this, and they die. So, um, And to give you an idea how we, we make this material, we actually do it in the test tube. We pull the gene out. And this particular one I'm going to show you about is from basalus anthracis, anthrax. We have some for quite a number of others, too. So I get this to work. So what happens is we go after we go into the DNA, we know what gene we're after, so everybody knows about PCR if you've done any molecular classes. Um, you identify the gene and you amplify that gene out. So you get that little piece of gene and you stick it into one of those plasmas I was talking about. And that plasmid has all the information you need to replicate that in a test tube. So it has all the information that it needs. It goes into a test tube, literally a small tube like that. And uh, as, it, as the material is made, we purify it through a column. And here's some of the protein right here. And that's. Pretty pure stuff. We add that to the cells in very, very minute amounts, and the cells burst. And to show you that I'm not making this up, I'm going to show you a movie of that uh, shortly. But before I do that, I'll show you what happens to a culture. This is um, adding 2.5 micrograms per milliliter of the muramidase to a culture that has approximately five um, no, I'm sorry, uh, 500 million bacteria in it. And it'll clear the culture in about 15 minutes. So it'll go from 10 to the eighth bacteria to one or two in about 10 to 15 minutes. So it's and that's with two and a half micrograms per mill. Now, how much is a microgram? Take one of those crackers, like a Ritz cracker, and break it up into the finest particles you can actually see. And those finest particles are still bigger than 2.5 micrograms. Microgram is a millionth of a gram. And there's 30 grams in an ounce. So you can figure out how many, you know, whatever it is so you're eating out there. I hear something. But uh, anyway, it's very, very potent material. So you don't need very much of it. And as I said, I was going to run a movie. I, I, last time I ran it, it, it's a little slow. This is in real time. And this is actually showing uh, amyramidase killing bacillus anthracis cells. So these are anthrax cells, and they grow in chains. You can see there's several chains here. And the reason things are moving this way is because we had to add uh, under the cover slip of the microscope, we added the muramidase to the right side, and it's pushing. It's flowing across. There's liquid flowing across, so some of the cells are going to go here. Now remember, I told you it's going to destroy the wall, so what's left when there's a wall? There's There's a membrane, and what structure is it going to have? It's going to be a sphere, right, because there's no structure to it. So here you're going to see this strain pushing in here because the muramidase is coming in. And uh, then you can't see the miramidase. You can only see uh, it's, it's invisible. It's too small here. But what you're going to see is over here, to start with, as the miramidase hits the cells, they're going to round up as the wall is destroyed. And there's the first one there. And, uh, and once it does that, that cell, I have it under osmotic pressure so that it won't burst in this particular case. But they're basically dead cells at that point. So you're going to see some over here, and you can see this here. And, and, and these are, um, again, these are cells that would cause anthrax. And uh, I'll let it go a little while. Now again, we make this in the test tube. We make uh, just bench level. We make about six milligrams at a time. It doesn't sound like much, but six milligrams is a lot when you only need 2.5 micrograms to do something. So uh, actually, it should be relatively easy to scale up. The means we do to scale up is all commercially available. It's out there. Buy all this stuff off the cell. Roche, which is one of the companies here, uh, develops the kits that we use. And uh, so uh, the means to make this is there right, right today. Not only that, but you can go into the genomes and find the sequences for these and pull them out in about a week or so. And uh, so if you have something new, even if you didn't know what it was, you could take the genome, uh, sequ- uh, and, and actually with the new sequencing technology, get enough sequence information in a couple of days, go find the muraminase genes and make the product in a couple of weeks. So we think that, in theory anyway, uh, you know, in practice there's all kinds of regulations that you have to deal with, but um, in theory, certainly you can make something that could be usable in a very, very short period of time. Of course, you have to test it clinically and so on and so forth. Those take years. But producing the material, as you can see, they're all... Uh, I'm not going to go through the whole movie, but you can see that eventually every, every cell on this thing is going to be a dead cell, and that's by being treated with the miramidase. Uh, this is another miramidase uh, for... Um, Different pathogen. In this particular case, the osmotic pressure is such that they actually burst. And I sped this one up. This is running four times uh, the actual uh, rate. And these just flat pop when they're hit. So uh, it's fairly potent material. So that was four times the normal speed. So as I said before, it's, we're focusing on understanding the bacterium and its critical aspects in order to defeat it. And every single pathogenic bacterium we've looked at has one or more genes encoding these things, as I said, up to four. So if they become resistant to one for some reason, we can use a different one. Uh, or you could use a cocktail that has all four in them because the chances of getting resistant to all four it wants to be uh, unusual. We're looking for, because of the kind of lab we work at, Yersinia pestis, Black Plague. We have the one from Anthrax. Uh, Acetobacter uh, are interesting to us and important because in field hospitals in the Middle East uh, and Afghanistan uh, people are picking up really after they've been wounded their immune systems are are suppressed because of the nature of the serious wounds they have and they get these infections in the field hospitals so they need something to knock down uh, this bacterium and this is a very, very common uh, bacterium that gets into infections uh, infections of people that have had surgery and this sort of thing. And, of course, the MRSA drug-resistant isolates of Staph aureus we were talking about earlier are also a big issue because we think that you could probably produce these things in sufficient amounts to use them as a washing, wash-down areas in hospitals. Uh, there may be a possibility of using it because the area you get colonized is your nasal area. Maybe even use it as sprays to knock down drug-resistant isolates of it. Uh, and, of course, these are narrow spectrum. That means they infect one or two pathogens only because they're very specific. But if you want a broad-spectrum one, mix them together. So what's really important from our perspective also is that if you purify these materials, they'll sit in the refrigerator for over a year in just regular old buffer, and they're stable. So they're actually a very stable protein. They're small protein, and so they're very, very stable. And they can take quite a bit of abuse, which means um, you could even give them to somebody who didn't know how to use them. So again, why don't we think we're going to get resistance? because it's a required protein. The the cell needs small amounts of this protein to function. So if it becomes resistant to its own protein, it can't divide. Now again, bacteria are pretty, you know, know, you've got millions of them all there, you only need one genius to figure out their way around. And they may figure out a means of resistance, but so far we haven't seen any. Uh, The uh, most antibiotic resistance mechanisms we talked about earlier have to do with getting into the cell and being acted upon in the cells or being uh, excluded from the cells. Well, these work on the outside, so there's, the exclusion mechanisms and pumps aren't going to make a difference, because they actually attack from the outside. And there's no opportunity for them to get in and be modified, because they don't need to go into the cell in order to do their, their damage. Uh, so as I said here, they work from the exterior. Uh, to summarize then, uh, natural antibiotics have been used by microbes to compete for resources for billions of years, so it's not terribly surprising that you have resistance out there. The mechanisms are already there. Uh, It's only been recently that humans have started to harness these to use them against pathogens. And so because the pathogens weren't, they don't live in the soil typically. Some of them do, but not too many of them. They're not going to have mechanisms of resistance because they didn't need them. Until recently, uh, they weren't exposed, and so they didn't need them. But now that we're providing antibiotics in the environment in the form of therapeutics, animal feed, and such, you're getting the mechanisms picked up by organisms that didn't have them before, and therefore you're getting resistance into what we would consider clinically important microbes. Uh, the resistance mechanisms are, they're not, there's not just one mechanism. Uh, you can have modification of the, of the uh, target. You can have modification or destruction of the antibiotic. You can exclude it from the cell. or or you can actively pump it. And the pumping is very serious because when you get pumping for one antibiotic, it usually pumps other things, and so you get multiple drug resistance with the pumps. And that's what the MRSA idea is about. Uh, The improper and overuse of antibiotics is resulting in increased resistance in human and bacterial populations, uh, human human and animal bacterial populations. And uh, again, we have a, a resource here that we can use, and in fact... In fact, I think in the 90s, the uh, head of Health and Human Services stated that we've got bacterial disease licked. We've got it beat, and now we're getting a whole new re- uh, realm of resistant isolates out there. Um, some examples are uh, tuberculosis. There's uh, some really, really bad. Uh, well, for those of you that are not old enough, in fact, even my my lifetime, not too many people in the United States had tuberculosis. But it was called in the 1800s. It's called a disease called consumption. And a vast, a very large number of people died of that disease. And first, they did they they it, it, they uh, separated people that had it away from people that were healthy. Uh, once they figured out what the mechanism was, and then they had some drugs for it. But now we're getting some drugs that are very, very resistant uh, to the uh, tuberculosis bacterium. It's actually not a bacterium; it's smaller than that. Uh, And uh, the problem is not only are they multiply drug-resistant, but for some reason they've picked up other traits that make them much more virulent than their original tuberculosis was uh, used to be. And a big problem in Africa now, because people, uh, there's a large percentage of the population, well, not a large percentage, but a significant percentage of the population is HIV positive. And if they pick up this TB, this drug-resistant virulent TB, they're dead in about two weeks. So um, these sorts of things are out there, and we, uh, you can't keep it out. I mean, you can't keep... Uh, it's like trying to keep the flu out of the United States. I mean, you know, they, they quarantined Mexico. Yeah, that's never going to work. Um, or wherever else they said it came from. Uh, but the bottom line is the stuff spreads. And so it's very, very important that we maintain the tools we have to work against these things and not to just use them health or skelter for no, no good reason. Um, there's some people that work in my laboratory that do most of the work in the laboratory because they make, they make me. They do the best of the job they can in making me do administration these days. But uh, did, is Jessica here? Any relatives of Jessica here? They promised they would come. I guess she didn't come. Uh, Jessica Waller is my head tech in the laboratory. She does a lot of the work in there. Brian Souza is another one of the technical people. Uh, Feliza is the one that isolates the muramidases and produces them in vitro for us. Lisa works on antibiotic resistance in the lab. Larry did the movies you saw. Aubrey also works on antibiotic resistance. And Angela is up at uh, Washington State now, but started to do the work in the lab. So with that, uh, I didn't answer one question on your sheet that I'll answer now, because it was pointed out to me last time. And the question was, how, why don't uh, drug companies want to make antibiotics anymore? And the answer is quite obvious when you think about it. First of all... If you don't have the animal feed part of it, and you don't have it in Europe or anything anymore, then there's no real market, there's no large market for antibiotics as such. Moreover, if the antibiotic works properly, then you're going to take it for 10 days and you're done, right? You hope. Uh, So on the other hand, you have drugs like uh, Lipitor or something like this that are what we would call lifestyle drugs. Once you take it for high cholesterol or whatever, you're going to probably take it the rest of your life. So if you're a drug company, which one would you want to be producing? Uh, So basically, there's a lot of the bigger companies that don't do much work on antibiotic um, development anymore. It's becoming uh, more of a a small niche market where you have some of these biotech companies doing it. There's a company down in San Diego that we work with that that develop new ones. But the big pharmaceuticals aren't in the business of doing antibiotics because there's no money in antibiotics. Uh, If you get resistance in five or six years, you've got a worthless compound. Uh, So... uh, That's basically the answer to that question. With that, I'll uh, open it up for questions, and thank you.
0: You've been listening to a podcast by University of California Television. For more information about this program or UCTV, visit us online at uctv.tv.